0: Hello, and welcome to our podcast series Inside Impact Investing. My name is Hans Stegeman, Chief Economist of Triodos Bank. This season, I am diving into the concept of economic transformation and transformative investments. By talking to different thought leaders, I want to find out what is needed to make our economy more sustainable and how to finance the transitions we urgently need in society. From the energy and the food transition to a more regenerative economy and a more equal distribution of wealth. Thanks for tuning in and joining me on this journey. Today I am talking to Timothée Parik. He is a social scientist, originally from France, who currently works as a researcher at the School of Economics and Management of Lund University in Sweden. In his PhD dissertation, The Political Economy of Degrowth, he explored the economic implications of degrowth. Tim is also the lead author of Decoupling Debunked, Evidence and Arguments Against Green Growth, a report published by the European Environmental Bureau. He frequently writes about green growth and decoupling. Welcome, Tim. Glad to have you here on our our podcast, Inside Impact Investing. You're one of the experts, I think, internationally about degrowth. And also in the Netherlands and also in the investment community, especially in sustainable investing, and more and more people are talking about degrowth. But to be honest, they also don't know what to do with it. Hmm. But maybe as as a start, can you explain to me what degrowth is and maybe, maybe also what it is not?
1: Yeah, we can start with this. So let me start with one sentence definition. So degrowth is a democratically planned downscaling of production and consumption to lighten environmental pressures in a way that reduces inequality and improves well-being. So now I can unpack a bit that definition. The factual degrowth as a phenomenon is a reduction of production and consumption. And if you only take that, then it's very similar to a recession. If you measure your economy's GDP, can either goes up, and then we call it economic growth, it can stagnate, and then we call it secular stagnation or just stagnation, or it can just go negative. Then we call this usually a recession or if it lasts a depression. So degrowth is a specific kind of contraction. So then you add like four essential features. So the first one is that it's democritically planned. So that's the difference between recession as a bit of an external accident of a mm. growth-based economy that suddenly does not manage to grow anymore. Degrowth is a voluntary shrinking of the economy that is being organized for that very purpose. So it's no accident, it's actually organized. And then why is it organized? Well, the first objective you could say is to lighten environmental pressures. So here degrowth is a bit of a plan B. It's a, let's say, reaction to our inability to green economic growth, or even more than just green economic growth, to reconcile or the functioning of our economies in their current size with planetary boundaries. So if you take a country, let's say like France, and France is overshooting many of its national planetary boundaries, and then you can green a bit. We've tried to do things over decades. There's been a tiny bit of decoupling in certain sectors. So that brings us one way. But if you cannot do more, then you will have to do something else. That something else will be slowing down certain sectors, stop producing certain goods and services and organizing sufficiency at the consumption levels for other goods and services. So the goal is you could see that degrowth as a macroeconomic diet for an economy that is in overshoot. That's important because it's already locating degrowth as a strategy for high-income nations. This is not a strategy you would apply in the global south. This is not a strategy that would fit a country where poverty remains, so where you would need to expand production and consumption, it's really a strategy for what you could call obese, you know, very advanced, old capitalist economies that have built up all the infrastructure, that at the macroeconomic level have enough wealth and infrastructure to guarantee well-being for all their populations, but that have constructed that affluence at the cost of an enormous ecological overshoot. So I'm continuing with the last two elements So you want to democratically plan that transition so that not only it's effective, so you do reduce your ecological footprint, but you do that in a way that reduces inequality and improve well-being. And then the question is, you know, why do you add this? I mean, why not? Of course, we're organizing this big ecological transition. We need to make it in a way that it doesn't make the most vulnerable part of the population in a worst-off situation. Otherwise, your transition is not socially acceptable. And you could even argue it's not morally worth pursuing. And then the question of well-being, and we'll come back to that, is one of the core assumptions of degrowth. So this is something we can discuss, but to say that you can both shrink the size of GDP in a high-income country, let's say France, while also improving the quality of life as measured with Concrete indicators like life expectancy, levels of education, subjective well-being, quality of democracy, trust levels, all these kind of non-financial indicators that if you manage to
0: do it intelligently could increase Mm -hmm. while you decrease economic activity. This is a very, uh, well, it started with one complex sentence, which it was one sentence where you explained (laughs) uh, the growth and then you list a number of features on degrowth. And I completely agree with you that it is is a plan B. And I think you also end up, like I do in the Netherlands, with a lot of discussion with people with green growth. So the, the idea that you can decouple resource use from economic activity, but then a lot of people claim then who are in the green growth camp. So, yeah, yeah that's nice also, yeah, that you can have a democratically planned scaling down of the economy, but... The true fact of life is that we need growth because otherwise we don't get a socially stable democratic process because it's easier to redistribute if the pie grows than if it shrinks. So in the end, I always end up with a discussion that people that mostly economists say, yes, we need growth because otherwise we don't have a stable society. Although we don't know if green growth happens if you really push on the arguments. How is your experience with that, that kind of discussions? I don't think that argument quite work. Now we have very good data on economic inequality
1: that shows how the gains of economic growth are split in high-income countries. Uh, So it's a surprise to no one that the sharing of value added is not completely equitable As would be maybe in a democratic, an ideal democratic state. But the people that are already rich are appropriating a large part of the gains of economic growth, which, from an economic perspective, is not really the most efficient way of rising well being because these people, they're already relatively the better off. Mm -hmm. So you would want, if you really want to make economic growth, a force of improvement, that every single euro being generated in your economy just falls down and arrives in the pocket of the people that are at the bottom of the distribution. Today, this is not the case. This has not been the case for many decades. And so you could even, if you want to be a bit provocative, to say that we've had decades of first very slow growth, a growth that was mostly appropriated by the people that were already rich, and a growth that wasn't completely green, so that actually has added a lot of ecological burden to uh, now what needs to be done in order to get back under planetary boundaries. The thing is that all of these things are source of instability. Rising economic inequality is a source of social instability and a potential force of anti-democratic behavior through lobbying and social divisions and class divide. Environmental degradation is a source of instability. So for me, I mean, I don't think that the argument that somehow that we need economic growth for a society to be stable work. For a society Mm -hmm. to be stable, we need more concrete things. We need to be able to finance quality public services. We need somehow... To be able to
0: guarantee well-being, so access to goods and services for people that need but it. But here, sorry to interrupt you, but here the argument comes always in it, it. It was in the in the budget announcement of the Dutch government, I think two years ago, that they say, "Yeah, we embrace well-being as a concept because we like to have retirement uh, or, or pensions to be paid and social security and education because it's very important for well-being." And therefore, we need economic growth as the best example or the, the best way to achieve well-being for future generations. That was kind of the narrative mm. they make. And I think you encounter them quite often that in the end, within a lot of discussions you have, it comes down to, yeah, but of course we understand that it's not only about economic growth, it's about broader well-being, et cetera, et cetera. But to get to that, we need economic growth. I don't think we do. I think these arguments
1: are based on a misunderstanding of what economic growth is at the very theoretical level of what it is at the phenomenon and uh, what kind of indicators do we need to measure it. So you said it yourself, like GDP is a bit like a pie, but GDP is not like a pie. It's not like a cake. It's not something you can slice up and divide. GDP as an indicator and the way it was designed in the 1930s and still the core dynamics of how we use it 100 years before is a measure of economic agitation. So you Mm -hmm. look at a specific period and you're taking the movement of some kind of monetary transactions as a proxy for value added, which gives you a kind of proxy for estimating how much is being produced in your economy. There are many flaws with this approach of measuring economic activity. The first one is that, of course, you only focus on monetary activities. And so you don't take into account a lot of other activities. To bounce back on your example about retirement, you know, right now in France, we have a bit of a (laughs) massive (laughs) nationwide debate about it. And so some people would say that oh, well, in order to secure the well-being of future generation, we need to work more, right, in order to guarantee. So we work more, so we manage to just put more money aside, and then we can pay higher wages to people when they retire. But then if you place yourself from a broader economic perspective, and you look at not only monetary values, but also whatever is being produced outside of the economy, I'm thinking in France, for example, volunteer work, every single sport association where you send your kids to play soccer on Wednesday, most like the great majority of every single sport structure are run by volunteers. This is not in, in GDP and these associations, they are mostly run by retirees. Okay. So now when you calculate to be okay, these people, they're going to be able to work. They, they will have to work a bit longer so they won't be able to retire. So, that free services, that wealth that existed in volunteer work for a um, kid sport association, all of a sudden will cease to exist. And that's a loss of wealth. So yeah. we see here, like, it's not only a matter of just, you know, we need money, and then with that money, we can finance things. We need to look a bit more like, what do we use money to finance? I'll give you another example, just to be, if you have a, like it is the case in France now, people arguing, but yeah, but the cost of healthcare are rising. And so, if they are rising, we're living longer lives, and so we will need to find the money in order to pay for that. Though rising healthcare costs, so maybe we we do need to work more. Then, as a political economist, you can also ask yourself what determines the price of medicine and healthcare services in today's economy, and you can do little scenarios like I've been doing for France, where you just look at the pharmaceutical industry and the prices that they have. And the way they're being organized today as for-profit businesses, and you compare this to their competitors that are being organized as not-for-profit businesses, cooperatives Mm -hmm. and associations, then of course you realize there's a huge price gap. And there's certain like unsustainable situation of monopoly from these big pharmaceutical industries. So just the general argument to be: let's say we completely transform the healthcare sector by regulating prices or just by imposing by saying if you want to be an actor in the healthcare sector, you cannot, you know, pocket, individually appropriate more than x percent of your profits. Yeah. All of a sudden you will reduce the cost of healthcare, which will be exactly the same effect that increasing the wage so that you have a better access you would improve access to medicine for the people who need it the difference is one scenario the one where you need economic growth is the one where you will rely on an expansion of your economy which we knew today also means an expansion of your footprint the other one through the transformation of the sector that guaranteed that reach the same result a better access can do that without growth or even in parallel to a contraction of the economy, which makes it advantageous in today's situation where we're, one of the priorities we want to do whatever we want to do socially, but whatever we want to do cannot go against the priority of reducing our footprint.
0: Mm-hmm. I think, but let's not go into detail, that has a, there, there's a whole list of deep transformations or Changes you want to make in society that uh, that that go beyond the current logic of markets. But what puzzles me always to get an agenda going because we see all in all countries fragmented political institutions. So it's very hard to get like your first point democratically planned way of getting to a degrowth economy. So, so you, you need institutional changes to get there. You need changes. And you also want to do it democratically. I can see completely the logic and I completely agree with the logic that you need degrowth from the ecological boundaries. And I, I also s- see the visionary alternative you can get. But my challenge is that if people ask me, how do we get there? Yeah, so yeah, we have to agree on on really different stuff. But can you explain to me, and I think you have some good ideas about it, what should be the first steps in societies like France or, or the Netherlands? How can we get there? And let me first say something, like if we
1: are today already getting to this stage where people are asking, how do we get there? It means we are already been progressing. From, look at when the Beatles report was published in the 70s, where... Most people would not even admit the idea that there were limited natural resources. And so today, I think, as you said, like now finally we understand the limitedness of natural resources. We can also study 30 years of effort to decouple economic growth from natural resources in a way that was unsuccessful. So we can learn from that too. And so the why of degrowth, now we understand. The what of degrowth has been much more developed. Now you have more than 600 peer-reviewed articles. In the literature, you can check, so you get a bit the essence of what kind of alternative this is made of. And so we've moved past the why and the what, and now we arrive at the how, which is already great. We've Mm -hmm. done a lot of progress, so I think that's something we should celebrate. And then now I'm going to give you an answer in in several steps to show that since degrowth is a societal transformation. Obviously, there's a lot of things to change. The first layer is to remove incitations to grow. That's the first thing, because right now we do have an economy organized around growth. So advertisement is a very good example. Advertisement is a very good institution to incite consumption. That's what it's for. If you want to maximize Consumption in your economy, it's great that you you have a lot of investment in advertising. If you want to do the precise opposite, if your goal is minimalism, as it is right now in countries that are really trying to reduce consumption, then advertising becomes an obstacle. So right now, we need to do away with advertising as a sector. It's just an institution that is not working for us anymore. Same thing for other little practices that have broader consequences, the very existence of the for-profit company. Again, a very handy institution in an economy where you really want to maximize the accumulation of capital. Then it's great, then companies, they all get created as for-profit companies and they compete on markets for financial performance and you have some kind of natural selection for the most profitable companies that gather more and more power and it's great. The problem is today, the priority number one for these countries we've been talking about is not capital accumulation. That's not what we care about today. The problem is not a problem of quantities, rather a problem of quality. We want somehow these core sectors of the economy to first guarantee access to the people that need these products more so that's also that's a allocation problem, not a size of production problem. And then we want that production to be organized in the most sustainable way possible. So we need to change the quality of the way we produced. And so we we kind of have to shift from a competition based on quantity measured by financial indicators by a competition based on quality measured by well-being indicators. So mm-hmm. What I'm arguing in the thesis is that we also need to do away with the for-profit business model. And here we've only been talking, and there's a lot more to talk about, about just
0: removing growth drivers. I'm just hanging in on capital accumulation, which is a core feature of capitalism itself. So this is not a small change, I would say. (laughs) Uh, That's for you. (laughs) This is is (laughs) one, uh, well, and it's also one of the most existential things, I think, in the discourse about degrowth and capitalism and also, so Triodos is a financial institution, so we still use the logic of financial markets to pursue a better world. And I think in this area, so so I completely agree with you that you should not maximize profit, but you should maximize well-being also at a company level. But the logic of the market, which is only measuring in money terms, makes it quite logical that you maximize only financial wealth. And even if you try to steer in a different direction, as we do, so we select companies based on their positive impact, as we see it, and we try to engage with them in such a way, then still our clients, which are very nice people and trust the money to us, and they also want to have a more sustainable world because that's why they bank with us. They also want to have a return or at least in their savings account that they get their money back. So even if you have clients and people who want to come to a more sustainable world, we still live in a capitalist society. And my question to you is, this is a long introduction, but my question to you is, Okay, if we want to change the nature of capitalism, is this something we can do within a capitalist structure? Or should we say, no, we should start somewhere else? There's no
1: starting somewhere else. And I mean, the history of all economies in the world is authority, organic history of change. And we first have to mention that no economy is truly capitalist. It's always an economy is a mixed sense. match of institution. If you take France, you know, 10% of the French economy is what we call the économie sociale et solidaire, social and mm-hmm. solidarity economy. So it's part of the economy that has its own rules. So, you you know, wage of being, they're being capped. The kind of profits you can distribute to shareholders, it's also capped. They have their own model of governance with multi-stakeholder kind of democracy. They have their own accounting frameworks so it's an alternative system that some people have described and I like this very much as you know the closest form we have of real existing communism. So within the French economy you also have like small businesses, small local businesses that have let's say an economic software that is quite different from a stock market big, you know, multinational corporation. And so here we have to recognize that already within the system we have today, we have the whole spectrum of potential future systems. The question we need to ask ourselves is what practices today are holding the seed of the economy of the future and what practices can represent the economy of the
0: past we're trying to escape? So we, we, we discussed what degrowth is. We discussed a little bit how we can have a transition towards it. And we also discussed a little bit on the relationship between investments, as I might say, and degrowth. But what I also encounter quite often is that people say, yeah, but the reason we cannot have degrowth is the interest uh, rate or mm-hmm. interest payments in general, because that drives growth. My position on it is, no, it, it is the core of capitalism, so capital accumulation that drives growth. And what the financial sector does is maybe only amplifying that need for growth. So like Minsky-like cycles that you get because of the system. How do you see that, the role of interest and the financial system in relation to the growth that we need or not need?
1: So there's been a few papers on this, starting with one in 2013 by a colleague, uh, Louison Canfour, Constructing like little models to better understand that question and indeed like positive interest rates do not create an imperative to grow if and only if the totality of the revenues from these interest gets back straight into the economy. So let's say if you go and have a loan at the bank, you borrow a million dollars, then you repay it with interest if that extra interest just gets back into the economy, let's say it's pays as, as wages for the people working in the bank, then, you know, that amount of money won't have to be created extra yep. to repay the debt because it will be in circulation. In practice, though, this is not the case because there is a bit of, uh, you know, the revenues from banking activities because banks, commercial banks, they usually are actually all of the time, most of the time, for-profit entities and they don't like little cooperatives, you know, distribute the integrality of their profits as wages and stuff like this. They do pay dividends to people whose money stays on financial markets. So it doesn't get available in the other parts of the economy. So we do have in practice a growth imperative coming not from the fact that you have positive interest, but let's say about the double fact of how high these interest rates are mm-hmm. and what is being made of the money earned through the act of credit lending.
0: Yeah, I think I, I agree on that one. Let's let's not go into the, the details of money creation for, for this one because there's also some story you can tell uh, why it should lead to growth. But maybe let's go to the final part. I'm very curious because you, you're such an expert on degrowth. And if you would be, let's say, the president of France in your case and you have Mm -hmm. autocratic powers to take three big measures that can be implemented tomorrow to come to a society which is more aligned with your degrowth idea. What would those three measures be? So the
1: first one is to turn every single business. So in France, we have around 4 to four point five million businesses, all of them must follow the rules of these not-for-profit cooperatives we have in the social and solidarity economy. So the law is already there. You just have to apply it. Actually, many companies, thousands have transitioned into these forms. Mm -hmm. So from that change on, it means that all these companies won't be able to distribute their profit to individuals. This is the model of the not-for-profit business that has been developed by American economist Jennifer Hinton. You know, you could keep the same businesses, same activity, but these rules, they're a bit more demanding in the sense of first democratic governance, where you have to decide what is to be done with the profits. Are they going to be reinvested into the activity of the business or like Patagonia, you know, are they going to be given to a foundation that's going to invest okay. to a social or ecological cause attached to the raison d'être of the company? Here we see that the interesting shift is that the raison d'être of a company is not to make a profit anymore. It is to achieve a social mission and making a profit as a means to achieve these missions. But it also means that in many activities you don't necessarily need to make a profit. You need to have some kind of, let's say, financial viability at the level of your company's budget, but you won't be jeopardized just because you don't make a profit, let's say. So that's choice number one. Choice number two, I would just ditch GDP as an indicator of prosperity. Again, that's not science fiction. I mean, I would do like New Zealand did in 2019. So instead of having one indicator to rule them all, 65 indicators of economic, social, and environmental prosperity. So let's say a dashboard. I would have this at the national level. And here, when we mean democratically planned, I know you said I had autocratic power, but I would organize, you know, a citizen convention, like a bit like we did citizen convention Mm -hmm. for climate. So uh, citizen 150, citizen pink randomly. And I would take, you know, like they did for the climate, six months to define and select a framework you know alternative indicators of wealth and then you can vote by referendum to see if the whole population agrees to have this as a new compass for public governance so it will be my choice number 2 choice number 3 and then I'm, I'm really hesitating because I've got many things to 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 put into <laughs> you this only agenda have three. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I'm going to I'm going to use that opportunity to use something that we don't talk enough about So right now, one of the challenges of the transition is to get rid of fossil fuels as fast as we can. Okay. This is extremely difficult in a developing country. This is atrociously difficult in a poor economy whose state revenues depends on, you know, oil export. But this is as easy as it gets relatively to all other countries in the world in our Western high-income nations. So for us, we should be at the frontier of this divestment uh, mission. One way of doing it that I think would be quite more effective than the carbon tax approach we've been using uh, for quite some decades now. I'm in Sweden as this carbon tax since 1991. I think Finland had it a few years before. So there's been a long time and that has not you know, decarbonized Sweden or Finland. Even these countries, these frontrunners, have not managed to ditch fossil fuels. So another approach would be the idea of uh, tradable energy quotas. I mean, the idea of quotas in general. Let's say in France, you have a carbon budget for the year. We do. It's in law. It's IPCC derived and you have this. So then once you know how many tons of carbon you can emit, you can divide this into permits, you know, fossil fuel energy permits. And then you allocate them in the way you want. You can auction them to companies, the government, you can get part of it as a kind of carbon, universal basic income to citizens. You decide the fairest way of doing that. And then, of course, you can have secondary market where people can exchange so that you still have an efficient allocation of these quotas. What's important is that at the end of the year, there's been no more emission than they are permits. And the year after, you decrease by 10% and you repeat the same story. Whatever you do and you learn from experience and most probably you improve the system, what you're preventing yourself from doing is from emitting more carbon that you can.
0: That's very clear. I just give you a a question and you as the new president has immediately already very thoughtful points to make this happen. And since I still have you here, my final question on this would be related to Triodos Bank and and what we are and what we try to do if there is one measure of one thing we should do as traders to get a transition to a degrowth society or as we call it a more sustainable world but that might be the same as a role as a financial institution what can we do what should we do then where can we make the biggest difference i've been invited by a lot of financial actors uh, over the last few months
1: and Talking to them about what they can and they can't do. So the obstacles they face in trying to do what they want to do, as you say, finance, change, and change finance, very often has to do with the imperative to make profits, has to do with a profitability constraint. So what I'm telling these actors, and I think that applies to, to your organization as well, is if we really want to be as bold as we can So make these moves that we've not made already. And I think it's important to be humble about this. What we've done now and for the last years has not worked, not a bit. We're still investing more, you know, the the entire international financial market sector is still investing more into the stuff we want to divest from. So whatever we've tried, you know, the effervescence of green finance has not changed the tendency. So whatever we've tried has not worked. We will need to be bolder. Except bolder right now means taking risk, which means investing into things that don't have quite a return on investment, not as positive as other things. And it even means investing in a lot of things that have negative return on investment. This we don't know how to do. A state knows how to do that. Philanthropists know how to do this. An investment fund doesn't know. It's not part of the things they do. So you need to change your structure in a way that will allow you to do these things, which you can do on top of other things you've been doing. But these might be the most important project you will be investing in. And so in practice, that means having a whole reflection on the relationship to profit that the organization has, its financing model, and its very
0: fundamental reason for existing. I was afraid of uh, what kind of answer you would give to this question but I think this is this is in line with what we try to do also in line and it is also difficult but I think that's the place where Triodos from his history should be at the place where uh, it is difficult and we don't we don't want to measure stuff we want to make change in the real economy and also the place where we don't have the answers um and not all the answers Thank you, Tim, for this very thoughtful and interesting, I think for most of our listeners, introduction to degrowth and also touching upon uh, the relationship with the financial sector. So thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode. Don't forget to follow us on Spotify to make sure you don't miss any updates. And as always, we are happy to hear your feedback. Until next time.